You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Oh my God, Janice! You know what I like about winter in the mountains? It's puffy weather. Puffy weather? That's what I said. Puffy weather. You know the time to cuddle down in your puffy, no matter where or when. But what if your puffy is some sort of overworked, filthy, greasy rag, like you've been hanging out in front of the fryer at Long John Silver's? That doesn't sound like the kind of puffy for puffy weather. More like dirtbag puffy weather. Well, if you need a new puffy, Black Diamond has you covered like glitter on the prom queen. Literally, covered in puffy. First, there's the Vision Down Parker. The puffiest puffy for puffy weather ever. Warmer than your dear mother's hug. By the way, call your mother, she misses you. She gave you life, call your mother. Do you want to layer your puffy? Maybe over a sweater? Then look no further than the Approach Down hoodie. Stash it away until it's puffy weather for real. What about the Access Down hoodie? It's perfect for puffy weather that's on the cusp of sweater weather but could be puffy weather in an instant. I never leave home without my puffy, honey. Check out BlackDiamondEquipment.com or your favorite local shop for the warmest, snuggliest puffies around. Oh Oh my my God! God. Who Who else loves puffy puffy weather? Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the... uh... The Normo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, it out. that's a big nice. place. You sold it's it out. Like I'll say, you oh, really God. should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a freight end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Calouse. It is January 30th, 2024, around high noon here in Colorado, and this is episode 279 of the Enormacast. And in my opinion, this episode is historic. historic. Can I have that kind of opinion about my own work? Well, I'm sticking to it. First of all, we have an interview today with David Smart. David Smart is an author. He's also a publisher, founder of Gripped Magazine up there in Canada. He's author of several books, three biographies, some guidebooks, and we are talking about his new book, Royal Robbins' The American Climber, a super in-depth biography of, you know, one of the most influential climbers of all time, certainly in the United States, but also worldwide. Royal Robbins was one of the guys who kind of invented big wall climbing. And I literally mean that. They didn't know what they were doing, and they made it up as they went, much the same way the sport climbers in the 80s made it up as they went. And we arrived with a lot of the things that they decided. Well, same thing with Royal Robbins and his crew in Yosemite, figuring out big wall climbing, figuring out ethics of bolting, 
figuring out clean climbing using nuts and then handing it off to the next generations. Great interview with David, great book, but perhaps more exciting than that, sorry, David, I think maybe you'd agree with that. We have an interview that I did in 2012 with the man himself, Royal Robbins. Yeah, pick up your jaw. I got an interview with Royal Robbins. Now, Royal Robbins passed away in 2017. I had interviewed him at the International Climbers Festival in 2012, and I shelved that interview. I had some problems with it, reservations, if you will. But reading Royal Robbins, The American Climber, and then talking to David has cleared me of those reservations. And I went back and listened to this interview, and a lot of the problems I had with it, I don't know, they kind of evaporated, okay? I know I'm being a little mysterious, but we'll talk about it in the interview. However, the important thing to know is I have an interview with Royal Robbins in this podcast, probably very close to the last thing he ever recorded, I would imagine, again, for reasons that will be revealed. So yeah, the man himself, Royal Robbins, on tape, being interviewed by me, a little bit ineptly, but still, his voice, his laughter, everything I believe about podcasting, right there. All right. Anybody who is slightly disappointed that this isn't a TAPS episode yet, well, you know what? Royal Robbins, okay? The TAPS episode was recorded last night, so it'll be out next. I should have done this intro when I woke up this morning because I had that deep, husky voice. Down there where the black diamond guy lives, whiskey will do that to you. Anyhow, it's coming out next. It's a banger. I, I assure you. You guys really came through with the voicemails. Okay, first up is David Smart. You may know David Smart from such hits as Paul Preuss, Lord of the Abyss, perhaps Emilio Camichi, The Angel of the Dolomites, maybe his memoir, A Youth Wasted Climbing. But now he has a new one out, Royal Robbins, The American Climber. And besides being a climbing author, David is a lifer. So let's get to it. Conversation with David Smart. Hey folks, you know that favorite local shop that I go on about at the end of my ads? Well, I say that because brick and mortar climbing shops have long been the L5 vertebra and the backbone of climbing culture. And now, Sportiva North America has decided to open an old-fashioned but newfangled retail store in Boulder, Colorado. You've heard of Boulder, right? Quaint little town on the front range of the Rockies. By the way, how do you know when a climber is from Boulder? Oh, they'll tell you. Shout out to Rose for that one. Anyway, the new Sportiva store will feature their most popular gear, opportunities to get your grubby hands on discounted equipment, and maybe most importantly, a chance to try on those shoes before you commit. Also, look for coming events as Sportiva gathers the community around climbing's best presenters, writers, and filmmakers. So if you swing through Boulder, and as a climber, you know that you eventually should, check out the new Sportiva retail store on 2100 Broadway and see how it holds up against your own favorite local shop. So, so I came across the book that you wrote. I was looking through your your catalog. Um, you're a prolific author. I don't know what what is the actual count. I tried to figure it out, but I couldn't find a page where it was all listed. Um, what, <laughs> well, what's written, your book count these days? Well, I've written two novels, uh, three biographies, and a memoir. And since I was a I was young, I published local climbing guidebooks for Canadian climbing areas, but I been long out of that 
as guidebooks became uh, more technical and <laughs> much better, um, I moved on to uh, to other things. So yeah, I've written in a, a number of genres. So. I love to write. So yeah, I mean that's ob- obvious. That's a lot of output, uh, and I have seen your name on a couple guidebooks as well. And um, I mean some some stuff probably in conjunction with Gript. But um, the thing I came across, which I wish I'd seen at least a couple weeks ago when we started talking about doing this, was your memoir, um, Mm -hmm. A Youth Wasted Climbing. Yes, yeah. Is the name of it. And the description of it, the description of it sounds fantastic. So I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that Mm -hmm. before we get into, uh, we're here to really talk about your Royal Robbins book. But before we get into that, um, to talk about that very thing, your youth as a climber. I see you now as this very astute author, this scholar, because I've read, I have read several of your books, um, three of them anyway. Thank you. <laughs> and, you know, all of them histories, all of them incredibly well-researched. And so you come across to me, and we've never met before, as this, like I said, this kind of scholar, this guy who writes these incredibly deep histories. But then I read sort of the back page you know, description of this youth-wasted climbing, and you came up climbing just kind of like, we all did, or many of us did, whatever it was, 40 now years ago. I know you're probably shocked to hear that number spoken out that, loud. <laughs> yeah, a little more 40. than that, 45 <laughs> or so. Um, I'm at 34, I think. So, um, oh. yeah, so so tell me a little bit about, you know, the context of that book and, and you know, quote, unquote, your youth-wasted climbing. Is there a statement you could make about, about that where we could get into a few of the details? Sure. Um like a lot of people who started climbing in the 70s, you know, it was traditional climbing only. At the time, it was all that existed. Everyone's aspiration was to maybe get to wherever was kind of close by that was, you know, had famous rock climbs. In my case, that was the Shuangunks in New York City. And then to try to go to Yosemite and just see if you could somehow climb big walls. And uh, so a lot of people had these experiences of coming up in these little groups of people climbing where you had this little team of what were, were mostly kind of misfits or kids. No ma- and like I've heard this story from so many people who started climbing at that time, hanging around at a crag somewhere. And there were these dynamics as you tried to work worked out your your adolescence through climbing and, you know, stuff with girls and drinking, smoking dope, you know, what kind of shitty jobs you were going to do to be able to get out climbing as much as possible. And also like the sort of aspiration to climb harder. And like in so many of these groups, there were sort of that I talked about to people about, you know, my friends who had kind of grown up and around little crags everywhere across North America. There were so many similar dynamics, you know, there was everyone as hard as they could they trying as hard as they could was climbing 10 plus, but there would a- always or often be the one guy who could climb 11 plus <laughs> right. and everyone trying to, to be like him and stuff like that. And so there was that. And like just having spent a whole life, basically, like I can barely remember anything from when I, I, I didn't climb. I was never a, a top climber. I wasn't even the best climber in my little group. I was, you know, one of the 10 plus guys that was never the 11 plus guy. Uh, and then we all like sport climbing came in and that turned into 12 plus and so on. And that big cultural change in climbing, especially in Canada, 
because we climb on limestone mostly in Canada, there are granite climbing areas, but uh, it was very liberating to be able to use, you know, large numbers of bolts because climbing, trying to climb like, uh, you know, John Backer and Joshua Tree in 1978 on loose overhanging limestone, people did it. You know, we all tried to do it, but it was very dangerous. So that yeah, I mean, if I if I interrupt, sure. I literally had that thought reading about or in looking at pictures of you as a youth. There's a few out there, not a lot actually. It's kind of hard to find out about your own personal climbing career because um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's been overshadowed by you know you being you know a publisher of of Gripped mm-hmm. and contributing all this history, your own history. I think's just kind of gone. Plus, you know, it happened in the days of no documentation really. But that thought occurred to me is that Canadian climbing kind of at that time sort of went zero to extreme really quickly because you didn't mm-hmm. have a lot of choices. And and I'm someone who's gone up and, and bolted limestone in the Canadian Rockies personally. Right. Yeah. And even shit, this was, uh, you know, the early aughts. I was, I was kind of running, still running into this, like not anti-bolt, but people really hadn't, not that many people had picked up the charge to really, start bolting that limestone yeah and, uh, and your alternative unless you went to squamish or the bugs was to go climb shattered limestone on gear which is something that is is like not that awesome and not that safe and um yeah. limiting so i i had that same thought so it's interesting to hear you say that and that it was a liberation to yeah to look at all those walls and go okay we can climb these now with some level of safety yeah and like canadian climbing had it it had a different background than American climbing because American climbing has the mystique, the mythology at least, and there's some fact to it too, of having been homegrown, made by American climbers at their crags. Canadian climbing, uh, like Canada generally, (laughs) uh, had very much of a sense of having been brought here by European climbers, uh, British climbers with the traditions they had, and then climbers from the Eastern Alps. And both of these traditions had fairly strong adventure type ethos. And there was like this sort of sense of, you know, maintaining that. And you still see that on like classic crags, like Yamnuska. I mean, like, I think there's a sort of limestone lens you like, you consider classic roots. Like I took somebody up on a route, a Yosemite climber who's fairly, you know, very good climber on a route in Yamnuska and it was like, you know, that's going, this is red shirt. This is the mighty classic. And it's like, how can you call this route classic? There's so much loose rock. It's like, yeah, well, there always is loose rock. There's loose rock in the Dolomites too, right? (laughs) Traditions in climbing and how you, how you become a climber or like, I actually not sure anyone really becomes a climber so much as realizes they are always were a climber (laughs) (laughs) and then starts actually climbing. Right. Are very important to me. I'm not in any way disrespectful. I was more when I was young, but I'm old and tired and cynical now, maybe about it. Not really, but you know, I think that that's uh, how you come through traditions and stories to become a climber is something that's always fascinated me. Yeah. Well, the other question, and and again, this is like my own, you know, the the, the podcast is my way of like going 
you know, doing my pop psychology. Sure. A lot of times is, you know, one line I read again was like, you know, trying to beat the boredom of the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is in Ontario. And so, I mean, who, who is this little kid then that, you know, took to climbing versus whatever else you could do to, to beat the boredom. And, 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 you know, I've gone about this a lot that it was just much more difficult to find climbing than it is now. So, so yeah. you know, what, what happened there? And, and then we'll move on to talking about uh, your later life. But I just got to know, like this little kid who's out riding bikes and doing the <laughs> things probably that little kids do. And then mm-hmm. somewhere in your teens or whatever, this thing popped into your life and, well, and, and consumed your life. Your whole life has been climbing. I mean, you, you've published, you write about it, you do it, you continue to climb all the time. So you're a lifer. How did that happen? Well, I mean, the moment, I guess, well, well, the actual historical, I guess, <laughs> dates, which I can't remember, but the events in any case, I went to a camp where they had some climbing and then I was doing some hiking out on the Niagara Escarpment, which is, you know, if we didn't have that in in Southern Ontario, you know, it'd be the gunks would be the next place and it's like an eight hour drive, but it's about 400 miles long and much of it is like 20 30 meter high overhanging slightly chossy but definitely climbable uh, limestone and because toronto is this enormous population center this sort of people end up here like in, in in new york city you know and so no matter what it is you want to end up doing there's somebody here doing it and there were some climbers at Rattlesnake Point when I decided, like just purely out of conceit, that I, I could climb. I started started going out there and figuring it out. And they were there. And George Manson, who had climbed uh, Tissac, and he'd done the nose in a day on Half Dome with Ron Kauk, and all these things, was a truck driver who was married to a woman in Toronto. And then he invited his friends, Greg Cameron, who was a superb climber who pre-soloed pipeline at Squamish 10D off with. And uh, these guys were just kind of here with this, you know, all of the weight of California climbing culture. And, you know, they would like take off for months in the summer and so on. But when they were here, they were like me and uh, a couple of other friends from the suburbs. It's like, there's hardly anyone climbing. So they're welcoming to anyone who's going to belay them, do things. And, you know, the old school of mentoring and climbing where uh, you got mentored, but you were expected to get smart and increase your skill level very quickly. Uh, I had the opportunity to try different things. And there were other climbers around too, here and in the Rockies, you know, when I got out there who had just a tremendous depth of experience and the scene was small enough at the time. So that was the opposite. Like, I mean, often if you're an experienced climber, you don't really want to, like, I mean, there's so many people you could mentor now, right. You, you wouldn't even know where to start, but back then it, you know, you showed up at the crag and if you seemed uh, in any way, like you could be assimilated, then you you were, (laughs) And so right. I was lucky to have those contacts and contacts with other other climbers who were like super welcoming. What and did your folks think? They <laughs> thought I was going to be killed 
<laughs> and they weren't uh they were sort of uh not really enthusiastic but also it was very it was a very uh I, you know lower middle class white neighborhood climbing was right. very white as well at the time right. and and uh but there was these people that I was climbing with and my other climbing friends were obviously not going to have an entirely healthy influence on me. I didn't want them to have an entirely healthy influence. Well, that's on me funny either. because I mean, at those days, it came with the counterculture, which is like, yeah, yeah smoking did. weed and drinking, and you know, being rowdy. And you know, if you weren't climbing, you were probably like, you know, vandalizing something or whatever. Yeah, you, you were know? behaving like, like, yeah, yeah, you were a deficit <laughs> to society. One way or another. Right. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I I rode motorcycles as a kid, like motorbikes, you know, right. dirt bikes and stuff, from a really early age. For some crazy reason, I I don't even understand to this day. My dad randomly bought me a mini bike <laughs> when I was in sixth grade, and I would just disappear on it. And go right. off and like and in that scene too with the few kids that I would meet up with, most of them older, mm-hmm. you know, like teenagers literally. And like, yeah, we'd I'd go off and and if we weren't riding our bikes, you know, somebody had brought beer or cigs or whatever, <laughs> you know. And it's funny, I think about that with like that era of climbing, like you know, you know, your your kid can go off to the ball field and and play baseball or. Or little David was like, okay, I'm out. Or not little, I'm sure it was you were a teenager <laughs> or whatever. But like, okay, I'm out. And then who knows what world that you would go be in for a while and then come back, you know. Yeah. That's what I imagine anyway. <laughs> well, I think it was like kind of, to me, it was like a non-world where I was coming from too, right? It was like people's aspirations were basically kind of almost non-existent. And then, you know, you you kind of eventually go through the looking glass where, you know, especially when you're younger, where, where climbing is like, you don't really care what it's going to do to your life or your, to your prospects. Then there's nothing else anyone can really offer you that you like, you know, it's not going to be as good. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, with time, you, you know, yeah, begin it's to cool. be able to talk to people who aren't climbers and so on. <laughs> I still, I still can't. No, um, awesome. Well, I mean, that's an awesome background. And again, I'm, I'm gonna go back and read it now. I wish I'd, I'd, I'd sort of seen that in your list of your author list because it sounds fascinating. And yeah, it's, and, um, that it's in many ways really my cool. favorite book to have written. Yeah. So cool. Well, you know, you, you've gone, gone on. Um, like we mentioned, we won't talk about the story of that. Um, because we have other business to get to. But you, you started gripped or, or was one mm-hmm. of the people who started grip magazine the the print climbing magazine in mm-hmm. uh in canada you've gone on to be this author you know as as this youth climber as this person in the scene um i talked to like you know dean fidelman who was in you know was this like kind of similar position in the in the stone masters right he wasn't the you know the mastermind or the the spiritual leader but he was there and he was part of it and his job or his inclination was to record this era you know through photographs what about you have, did you have like an inclination to have an awareness or of like history of what was being done did that come later like when did you become this person who was basically recording the history of in your case you know Canadian and North American climbing because you know the loss of of sort of print magazines yours is still still printing but this kind of detriment where we've we've lost a few of them people yeah, don't realize bad. is that is climbing history like oh, yeah. the, the those magazines for for three decades 
were the thing that was recording climbing history. And then once a year, the Alpine journals came out or whatever, but, but, um, where, where did that inclination come from? And did you have it back then? I think the inclination for me came out of a sense that something was originally very important was happening to me and to the people around me. And it was, uh, in some ways, the conceit and in other ways we were inventing climbing as we went along. And if you were involved in early sport climbing, it was the same thing. You were inventing a, an activity and its practices, its, you know, its mythologies, its values as you went along. And I had that sense from the start, which was why I think I was interested in climbing guidebooks, which like when I look back, they were sort of diaries of little communities of people as much as anything. Yeah, and but, historical records as well. You know, I failed to mention that one. Yeah, um, but but they were very much dedicated to recording history as yeah, much as giving information about how to climb a route. They were much less. They were much more informal and sometimes even coded in some ways, so that it was difficult to actually <laughs> do what they were describing. Um, and so, as I got older, and I saw the different vectors of people's lives who I climbed with, you know, where they ended up. Some of them did incredible things in climbing. Many just sort of dropped out. And I started to become interested in our stories as people. And I have always been fascinated with original records of climbers, you know, whether it's these people I've written about or like what it was we wrote when we thought, no one was necessarily going to come and read it and, and analyze it. Not out of any curiosity. I have some of that. But mostly because it matters so much to me. Like how it mattered to people who <laughs> did incredible things. Really, uh, it's affecting. And I think our story, just, you know, any, any effort that can be put into understanding it better. Whenever you write, you can write for a whole lifetime, as Jermaine Greer said, and shine a light on something small, which is what I try to do. Yeah, and if correct me if I'm wrong, but you've got three biographies, mm -hmm. Paul Preuss, Emilio Camichi, and now Royal Robbins. Mm -hmm. And is that the order in which you um, in which you wrote those? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, very much. That's what I thought, because that's, that's the order I read them in. Yeah. Um, and your current, the current you know the the newest book the one that just just came out really from the mountaineers is is the royal robbins book uh, american climber and um the american climber sorry and it kind of struck me that that one you know it's a more modern figure in history um mm -hmm. he's only you know he passed uh, not too too long ago you know is is definitely a current figure someone that we could we could could have talked to and actually part of this interview is is an interview that I have with uh with Royal Robbins mm -hmm. versus you know those other two that are historical figures long gone um and and also from an era where maybe getting records and and finding out personal thoughts could be quite difficult and I think in particular with Kamichi and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong but you know his background again working class you know not one of not not the type of person for who's necessarily prolific with writing journals and things like that. Um, plus his era, you know, it, it, it ended right before the world, world war two and, you know, Italian history shifted so hard. And in a lot of ways, I think they did a lot of work post world war two to, to almost get rid of 
at least that part of their history. That's sort of something we, you know, go down a rabbit hole with. But so can you talk about um, the projects comparing someone sort of researching someone like Royal Robbins, more modern and researching Mm -hmm. these these figures that are a little bit more lost to the past um, and what you had to bring to that as a researcher and an author? I think in the case of obviously like Royal died not that long ago and he knew you know, one can speak to many people who he knew, although people from the golden age of Yosemite climbing, as they call 1957 to 1969, same era as the space race, um, are dying too. They're getting older and like mm-hmm. Glenn Denny died after I interviewed him and, and so on. So I think the opportunity to speak to people who actually knew Royal was, uh, it was an enormous opportunity to get people's thoughts and so on about it, like people who knew him really well, like even people who were in high school with him. That was really a benefit that uh, a benefit I didn't have as much with the other um, the other publications, or I didn't have at all, with the exception of having presented the Komichi book in uh, Baluno, and then being presented with a telephone with a hundred and two year old. Renato Sanudi on the other end, who at 16 had spent a day climbing with uh, with Komichi. So I think... Amazing, really? Just yeah, one yeah day. I was like, because oh, I'd man. said, because someone had asked me, I'd been set up for it, but uh, it's interesting you ask about youth-wasted climbing because uh, that book finds people who love it, who love it. And I've been even asked questions about it in Italy and so on. Oh, nice. When I was supposed to be talking about Komichi. Um. Yeah, in a sense, Royal is more relatable. And certainly, like the fact that he just was a compulsive writer and recorder mm-hmm. of, of things he did on a daily basis, like tens of thousands of documents uh, exist, made it richer background. Royal, you know, he comes up in the, in a more like, the more relatable 1960s kind of context and then the grade system preoccupation with free climbing clean climbing the idea that you travel to do a boulder problem like royal in besides john gill who was sort of playing his own game at the time royal was the only person i'd ever heard of who heard there was a boulder problem halfway across the country and got in a car and drove there to try to do it speaking of the thimble of course in the needles but so yeah those contexts are definitely they're different well you know also you were dealing with a figure uh you know what there's a bunch of writing about already mm-hmm. um Padiment has a biography uh that came out i don't know it was must have been in my 20s um so quite a long time ago the spirit of the age royal had his own autobiography that he was he was uh working on volumes when he passed away yeah. um and i believe had three out or two so you had a lot of stuff, you know, from the person you had a, a stuff about him. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I enjoyed about your book about uh, the American climber is, is I think you did a, a really good job of, of a little bit of myth breaking, if you will, or, you know, allowing uh, Royal's weaknesses to come through in a, in a lot of ways and, and the, the contradictions in his life to come through as opposed to not that he avoided them necessarily in his books, but the previous writing to me, it seemed a lot like more, uh, what's the word? Is it hagiography? Is that the word mm-hmm. I'm looking for? Like, you know, 
kind of building the myth, building his own myth and and just creating this giant that we have in our minds and climbing. And I loved the fact that yours wasn't disrespectful in any way, but uh, but, you know, showed the man, the the real person uh, a lot more, I think, than anything I had read. So how, how did you go about sort of thinking about that as far as your writing and what you wanted to accomplish with your book versus just another telling of the great story of the great man that that we've heard so many times. With all of these things, I sort of gather everything I possibly can. Like, so I know, obviously I know what the legends are uh, about these people. And there were a lot of them about Royal. And uh, then I look at what I can find in terms of any other information, things they said to people, what the timing of it was relative to, you know, the big climbs or other events of their lives. And, you know, I'll speak to, in Royal's case, spoke to many people, like, what did you actually think about him? And you begin to realize, too, that there's different understandings of who a climber was, a great climber, based on what what your relationship to that person is. Uh, Great climbers are often described, you know, by people they climbed with who were maybe were their friends or people who were never really... Uh, top climbers themselves as often as like, you know, majestic, could not fall, moved, you know, in this sort of extremely smooth manner. You know, the price was described that way by lots of people he climbed with or who saw him climb who were actually not very good climbers or like not, maybe just not as, not in any way at his level, but People like who climbed with him who could climb at his level, like Tita Piaz, said, well, he took a lot of chances. He looked pretty shaky to me and and so on. And then the same is true with Royal. Like to really understand Royal as a top climber, you have to talk to people who were climbing at his level with him in his group. And, you know, they obviously are going to humanize things somewhat because they see him trying his hardest at stuff that none that all of them can just barely uh, accomplish. But... I don't set out in any way to do anything but to create as accurate a pos- as possible uh, image of a life, right? A life is a basic unit of storytelling. And I think these people, you know, it's like, uh, I think the poet Auden said, you know, the truly great won't care what angle we look at them from, right? And these are public figures. We deserve to know. Like somebody who like, I mean, for me, it's like I really wanted to go to Yosemite and climb the northwest face of Half Dome. It preoccupied me. I had to try it twice to get up there. And the first time I was just too freaked out to, to do it. And then, you know, the nose and the salathe, and that's my wall climbing career in two senses you know walking in in the footsteps of these people like we build our lives around the legends not just the legends but things that they create that become absolutely important monuments of our own existence i think we're entitled to have a some insight into who they really were now that being said i've tended to ignore people in the climbing scene or not ignore them in any way, but not want to write about people who I know are like fundamentally awful. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, you know, Preuss and, and 
Komichi and Royal, three total greats in the history of climbing, didn't have any like, you know, horrible personal flaws, right? And I think in some ways, like where you get into this kind of problems with this is like not accepting that everyone has a life where they, they struggle to you know, differentiate themselves from their parents, find out how they want to spend time in their, their life, figure out things with, with love and romances and all this stuff. And so I was just trying to portray Royal as richly and as accurately as I believe that I was able to do. And he's a figure like, uh, you know, every 20 years, there's a new 600-page biography of Beethoven. I'm not sure the climbing market wants a 600-page biography of anybody, but the um, <laughs> someone else 20 years from now will have other insights for sure. Did you ever meet Royal? Were I you... did not. I might have, but I did not. What do you mean by you might have? Well, I mean, I was at trade shows where he was there. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> so, okay. So curiously, we our paths never crossed. And I regret it because every single person I ever talked to who met Royal, no one says, yeah, I met him. Next question. Everyone has a little <laughs> story about their uh, meeting with him. So uh, I wish I had done. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like to have a good, well, maybe I'm wrong about this, um, but having not written a biography of anyone. So um, although I do a lot of biography on here, I think, or, yeah. but um but you know we meet and oftentimes you know this this show started with literally interviewing my friends you know right. because they would because they would agree to do a podcast which nobody knew what that was or anything sure. so i just said no just trust me come and come to my house and we'll do this thing but you know i almost feel like your remoteness from it in a sense although it's not truly remote because again his life affected your life mm -hmm. in so many ways at least what he did, his work, the works of his life, m might be a positive in that sense of of a coming at it with a clean slate. Uh, is that like off base, or you don't don't think it would have mattered had you interacted <laughs> a fair amount with with Royal over the years, the way like a Michael Kennedy mm -hmm. had, you know, yeah. as the publisher of Climbing Magazine, he could also write a biography. I mean, he's mm -hmm. certainly capable of that kind of writing, but oh, yeah. uh, it would it would be a very different perspective. Well, I feel very much like it just it just depends. I think some of a lot of the kind of biographical stuff that is written by people if you know somebody and you're very close to them, then that's not just biography, it's also memoir, it's also engaged on that level which doesn't take anything at all away from it. But, you know, the notion that knowing somebody really well would make you their ideal biographer. It's like history is full of examples that show that it's not true, right? I mean, obviously, Donald Trump's closest friends will not write the most accurate biography of Donald Trump. But what they do write will offer insight into his circle, his friendships, how people saw him. And then that becomes part of the primary material for maybe for a more objective inquiry, but. Yeah, so one of the things I was kind of surprised at is how messy sort of the ethics and bolt wars and things like that were, <laughs> you know, because we have these kind of very boxed stories right. where, you know, people would put bolts in and 
Royal would chop them. And then the one, you know, story where he started chopping the Dawn wall and, and stopped and, you know, these, these very set things, but, um, obviously reading that book and you got into some details, it was a lot messier and even Royal's ethics were a little more fuzzy than, than sort of the myth or the stories that I have in my head. Um, including, you know, the, the fact that, uh, and, and these paragraphs would like pop up and then disappear in the book where he would place a bolt on a second ascent, you know, of, of like the mirror wall or whatever. And I was just like, read back. I was like, what? Like, I thought this guy was like a complete turnaround or, or bust or whatever. But there was a lot of things where he, you know, he sort of let things slide or, or broke some of his own rules and made me realize how, you mentioned earlier how with sport climbing, you guys were making it up. You know, all the initial sport climbers in these pockets around, uh, especially in North America, which was late to the game compared to Europe, were sort of just making it up. And they were making it up as well. Uh, hmm. But then it the myth became that it was already decided and, and they had their stances and they were in their groups and their camps. Um, you know, what about you? How deep was your knowledge of that history and were you coming at it too from from sort of, uh, I don't know, sort of a pop culture kind of knowledge of what supposedly happened via, you know, Valley Uprising and things like that? Um, no, I was not coming at it from the point of view of what happened, what they recorded in Valley Uprising, which I loved, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but well, um, I did not, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but, you know... I didn't know all of the details and some of the uh, like sort of more nuanced stories like uh, Michael Covington and, and Royal on, you know, the prow where they're sort of going through the bottom of the barrel of, of walls. And like the next walls are either going to be super thin seams connected by bolt ladders or they're not even going to do them. And Royal is like, this is, this is the next the next path right and like on tissac whatever it was 110 bolts someone should check that number but like a lot of bolts mm -hmm. and uh royal was like i'm gonna write my name on the wall forever and in a way i guess he'd already done that with the northwest face but you know he was determined to go up on tissac and do it even though like you know there were large sections that had to be bolted but he himself wasn't shy about it. He wasn't, he didn't obscure the fact that these things had happened and the clarity with which people sort of ascribed him to like being utterly against it. He didn't feel the need to have that himself. And also like you get people in climbing history, like Paul Preuss, if you wait the rope to repel, you know, you're allowed to do that to descend and fail if you want, but the climb is totally invalid. If you use one piton, the climb is totally in invalid. Like Proy said, I'm not interested in the discussion they have in, you know, the sandstone towers near Dresden of whether, you know, two or three bolts should be allowed because it's a wrong-minded discussion because as soon as you use one, you totally invalidate the climb. <laughs> So there are people like that in history, but Royal and these guys, they're not He like, must have been fun to be around. <laughs> he was supposedly, he was, a, he was okay, a cool. hilarious, fun guy. Okay, cool. Uh, but climbing, I think he was not, right? right? But um, 
you know, he could be not fun to climb. But in Royal's case, they're trying to do something totally unprecedented. They're, these climbs on Yosemite walls, there's nothing else like in the world. They're figuring it out. And because he spoke about these things at all, and he was working out what are, what are we going to do about this stuff? What are the ethics, the approaches? Um, he had to say in some idealized form what, what the rules were going to be. And then Harding delighted in portraying himself as the absolute opposite of everything Royal wanted to do. When in fact they were doing things that were, were pretty similar <laughs> right? Right. In, in many ways. Right. So it became kind of a caricature. I don't think Royal participated that much in it, but he was actually quite amused by uh, Harding's book, Downward Bound, in which he's portrayed like in caricature as a, and uh, for rules and Harding and, and Royal in their own way, they stayed, they stayed friends. For the, yeah, for that, the that's, I mean, when I just quipped that Royal didn't like uh, that part of Valley Uprising anyway, is that, yeah, it was too simplified and that he was close with, with Harding and respected Harding and was friends with Harding. And yeah, yet, yeah. You know, it's interesting that you talk about the Downward Bound book, Harding's, you know, very satirical product of the age, the style right. and everything else. And, but it's, it's interesting because that was satire, but that became what we think of as Royal Robbins in reality. And it, it's sort of fascinating how something that small or, or amusing could become such this critical part of the myth building. Um, because like the whole Valley Christians thing and is something that, that, you know, it, it's in my head. And, and when I see pictures of Royal and oftentimes they're, they're very, you know, he's like rubbing his chin at the chessboard and everything else. It's like it all fits. And even though I now know it's not true, it's almost like I can't get rid of it. I can't get rid of this like sort of staunch preaching, you know, guy marching around Yosemite trying to like get everybody to follow his his lead. But that certainly wasn't the case. And um, and it's also fascinating that there's so many times when it, it's talked about how shy he was and how sort of unwilling to get on these pulpits that he was at least uh, outwardly, if not while in his private writings. I think he became the, the Royal Robbins of history, right? He was somebody who, you know, he had a look, a sort of a, a swagger. He was aware of his place in history. He evinced that in, in photographs. You know, he was he was well aware of the importance of of the of the image, and he was sort of, in terms of what he did and what he proposed to do, and so on. He his transformative effect on the on world climbing was absolutely incredible. Like Yosemite is a place that when he gets there, there's one hard climb, the Steck Salathe, as it's now now known, um, and um, Royal walks up to you know Alan Steck and says, you know, he's seventeen years old or something. And says to Steck, oh, "Is there anything worth climbing around here?" <laughs> <laughs> and you know there was, but a lot of it had to be done, had to be thought up and done. And and people like you know Joe Fitchin and you know Glenn Denny, Schoenard say, you know, it was Royal's ideas were crucial to these things happening. Royal said we can do this, we'll do it this way. And he couldn't have done it all himself. But by doing that, he sort of bequeathed these climbs that are still mostly the climbs that, you know, if you go to Yosemite, I was there for the 
facelift this year and you go there and uh, you look up on El Cap, most of the people are on the Salathe and the nose, right? <laughs> like people, they want to come, they want to do Royals roots in many ways still. Yes, there's a lot of people elsewhere, but these are still the, the you know, the great lines that, that people want to want to follow in. So part of like this myth building or, or, or whatever Royal, you know, Royal kind of had this demeanor, especially late in life of, of sort of inhabiting you yes, know, yeah, that's these things word. we're talking about, right? Yeah. He, he learned to public speak, you know, and I think there's something in there about how like once he, he learned to public speak, that became his voice where his friends would call mm-hmm. him and not even recognize who was on the phone because he yeah. had learned to orate you yes, know, and exactly. he would orate on the phone and things so he he came to inhabit that and it was part of his business you know his business was literally named after him you know royal robbins the clothing company um and so i'm sure the family kind of like fell into this you know sort of holding up this this thing you go in there and you want all the writings um they they give them to you and again we talk about you know creating this image of the man that sort of if not I mean, it just like looks deeper than that, that image. What was it like to work with the family and have them allow you to go a little deeper than some of these other other things that had happened? Um, or sorry, some of these other things that had been written and get, you know, get, you know, to put it in a word, just get more personal. About yeah, it was, was. wonderful. Um, you know, writing biography, it's, uh, as I was saying, it's, it's using a human life as a or choosing uh, as your framework a human life, the most basic form of storytelling. And then you're also connecting with other people, whether they're, you know, archivists or, you know, in the case of Preuss, there were even like family members and so on. Um, and yeah, the people who Royal was closest to of all were uh, you know, his family. Uh, Liz, absolutely extraordinary climber person, his kids. Tamara and Damon and their stories about Royal were, you know, they were, they were intense. You know, you grow up in a family, right? As climbers, we go like, well, you know, nothing could be more important than that issue of whether Royal added a bolt to the expanding flake, Texas flake, whatever. But actually, you know, you raise, you raise children and, you know, that shines a light on a whole other uh, host of, uh, of weaknesses and so on and or you live with somebody for your entire life like uh, their entire life like uh, you know Liz lived with Royal so I welcomed that and I welcomed that that input and you know when you say you, I got to see everything I think that it would be that would be an arrogant claim sure. uh, but a lot of people you know the family and Steve Roper and so on that provided me with all kinds of like interactions they'd they'd had with him but i don't think that there was like this notion that you know royal would have wanted or uh, ought to have been protected from whatever you know if you want to call it scrutiny that i i would have i don't think it was shared at all by the family or people who were closest to him and certainly the impression i got from from liz is royal just if anything just didn't really care what, what people thought about what he said or did. Uh, not in some horrible sense, but that he was a kind of a man unto himself in, in many ways. And they were sometimes, you know, 
I would talk to them about things I was going to say and they would go, no, that's not what happened. This happened and their story would be, you know, less flattering because I think they realized how huge Royal was for climbing, American climbing in particular, Mm -hmm. but world climbing, you know, they wanted people to get an accurate view of him. I mean, of course, you know, personality flaws like uh, Emilio Comici had, whereas you're a fascist, Royal didn't have any, there weren't weren't any stories like that. But, you know, that's one of the challenges. And then like, you know, navigating between, uh, you know, what your understanding of the story is and what other people have. But like in terms of the family, the only things they ever told me I got wrong were just factual. I never once was told by them don't say this or don't say that, right. you know, unless it was like when, you know, this didn't happen that way or somebody, you know, with some of these stories, it's like who won the, who won the chess game by Columbia Boulder that day and did this or that really happen? And like in a n- number of cases, like Liz, who was there, was able to just say, well, I was there. That didn't happen. There were a couple <laughs> of times where like, you know, somebody was driving a car and they tried to climb some, mud pillar or something and the cops came and you know i had at one point three different people telling me they drove the car when the cops came right Uh, (laughs) you can either say three people said this or you can you know work out who you think uh who you think the driver was so these are the challenges (laughs) of biography right this part of the discussion sort of brings me to my dilemma of 10 years um which is going to be part of this this uh show is that Quite a few years ago, not long, I think it was just the summer after I started the the podcast, which was about six months into it only, um, I had a chance to interview Royal Robbins at the uh, Lander uh, International Climbing Festival. And I've had this interview that I have been sitting on for kind of reasons that we might get into here. I sat down with him in Lander for about 30, I think it was about a total of about 40 minutes. Uh, maybe about 35 of that on on recording and and came home with an interview that I decided to shelf and I decided to shelve it for a bunch of different reasons um, and it has a little bit to do with the the last chapters of your book as well and and kind of the the very sort of nadir of of Royal's life um, dealing with some illness that was was affecting him physically and I kind of interviewed him. Ray, I think it feels like right when those those things were starting to surface. I think it's a little bit apparent in my interview, although looking back at it or listening to it again and sending it to you, it I think I was sort of overblowing that in my head. But can we talk a little bit about the end of Royal's life um, as you wrote about it? And then um, we can talk a little bit about this interview uh, before we queue it up for the for the end of this show. Towards the end of Royal's life, he had a rare sort of neurodegenerative disease but um he had been partway through his biography writing process when it kind of began to kick in and it's like slowly deprived him of capacity to move around eventually to speak and uh he was strong and fit still uh when this happened it was a you know great tragedy but he dealt with it very stoically to some degree you can sort of see listening to the interview you have that his like earlier, you know, you know, the speed with which he could respond and so on is, is decreased to some degree. 
but his memory of things is still excellent. But yeah, and it eventually uh, took his life. But if he hadn't been uh, been stricken with this disease, he probably would have lived quite a long time because he was uh, notoriously uh, strong and uh, healthy living guy. And it's as we've been talking, um, and we talked on the phone uh, right after I sent you the the interview. One thing that comes through in there. Well, let, let me say this: one of the reasons I had this dilemma is because I went into the interview with all this these myths and all, and you know this this image of royal that I had from from climbing and from following him and from, you know, idolizing him. I have a signed copy of Spirit of the Age. My patron saint was Core, but those guys were contemporaries and respected each other and, and, and Royal respected Core a great deal. So I went into this interview with all of that and um, I wasn't very good at interviewing yet, I don't think. And also when I sat down, I immediately got really nervous because I was like, okay, that's not what I'm going to get. I'm not going to get this guy firing. But the truth was, is that I got what I got because he's Royal Robbins. And what comes through in your book too, and you were talking about him, him not caring about what other people thought of him is like, is he doesn't play along with my interview, <laughs> which also as like a novice interviewer, like put me back on my heels as well, because he just, yeah, he was like, yeah, I have to do this thing. And I'm going to give this kid guy, I mean, a kid compared to him. Um, what I'm going to give him, but that's it, you know? And so it, it's funny now to listen to it uh, and, and hear me kind of like stuttering a bit, like, okay, well, that one didn't work or whatever. <laughs> um, but also like I got home and I was like, I don't know without context if this is like a, a going to serve Royal to put this out into the world to climbers who had never heard of him or, or, or don't understand like the, the immense figure that he is. And that was kind of my reason for shelving it was more that than, than my embarrassment about how I interviewed him. Um, cause I was, you know, that were all my interviews were like that then and still are, I mean, here I am stumbling through this. So, you know, and the other thing that had happened, and I, I want to put this in context too, is that when I had told Michael Kennedy and Julie Kennedy, um, you know, I was excited to go talk to Royal and they knew him and blah, blah, blah. Michael had actually given me a little bit of a heads up. He's like, he had said to me like, yeah, we, we'd seen Royal over the last couple of years and sometimes it's the old Royal. And sometimes there's, you know, this indication of something going on and, um, we're not totally sure what it is. And I don't think they were being very public at all. I mean, it probably wasn't public at all. And, and that was the other thing that I had kind of a feeling about is that having that a little bit indicated in this interview, am I like invading his privacy by putting it out? But when I read the book and I was like, here's this book that can put this man in context and, and help us realize who I'm actually talking to. Um, it started to get me excited to put the interview out and, and I think it's going to be a great addendum to this. Um, but I don't know if you have any comments on that, on, on what I encountered there across the table with Royal and, and, and what was true and, and to his spirit. Cause I think there is a lot of stuff in there that's true to his spirit. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting to listen to what you have to say about it. I mean, it's a uh, progressive supranuclear palsy, I believe is the correct name of uh, the disease. And like it, it's just, it's mysterious. Not many people have suffered from it. And from what I heard from the family, he had sometimes when he was like, he could, you know, speak very, very clearly. And other times he just didn't really want to or, or um, couldn't. 
Um, but I think he's very clear on, you know, you ask him questions, he answers them. In some ways, he's sort of, uh, in some interviews from earlier than that, like 10, 15 years before that, he is more the public speaker. And uh, in your interview with him, he's more the kind of, the clipped kind of, here's the answer, and that's that. Like, I think at one point in the interview, he more or less says, you know, that's it. <laughs> he literally says after that's he it. he answers a question. And, and, and uh, I kind of reduced the long pause after that, by the way, like, because I sat there and I was like, okay, like, come on, like, give me something a little bit more. Yeah, so that that was just, yeah, sorry to elaborate on that, but that is a is a kind of wild part of the interview. And, and again, having read your book, I was like, oh, no, he really was just done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think he'd been asked a lot of these questions a lot before. Not many of us get asked the same questions about one thing about our life sort of as often as Royal would have. And uh, so there was that. But, you know, I think it wasn't at all a bad interview. Like when you look at other interviews that Royal did earlier on, I mean, there were other interviewers that certainly managed to uh, piss him off a lot more than you did. <laughs> Oh, that would have withered me. I would have, they would have had to like take me out in a body bag um, if I had pissed him off. Like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not the guy I am now as far as, although I, I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to piss off Royal Robbins to this day, but yeah, no, that, that would have been, that would have been a pretty miserable experience for me um, to, to have, have like my idol get angry at me because I'm being stupid. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think he was still, he still like, he was resolved to come to continue with the uh, autobiography process till until like very late in the onset of his disease. So I think it was also one of these things where it made it harder to, um, to speak and to elucidate answers than it did to understand what you were being asked. So, yeah, I mean, and it, it, it kind of, my uncle, uh, you know, passed from Lou Gehrig's um, and that, you know, that with that particular disease, it's, your mind is, is fine and, and your body's betraying you and, and you can't, you know, you can no longer express yourself, which increases your frustration. And, um, you know, I just watched that all, all happen in real time and, and, uh, it's very difficult. And, and I don't think it's quite the same with this, but it was clear that expressing himself was a bit exhausting. And, and I, the interview was a little bit exhausting and it actually Liz kind of ended it. She was in the room which also made me freaking nervous. And she, you know, very politely and casually ended it, but also I think realizing that, you know, this was, it was done and, and it had been somewhat difficult or, or whatever. Um, and, and physically leaving the room and coming into the room too, there was something that was happening, which like I'd only sort of been told, you know, by again, by Michael kind of mentioning it. Um, so as again, this guy who's ready for his idol to walk into the room, yeah, it was a little bit difficult for me. So uh, all those things wrapped up, but now, but now, like you said, I've, I've, I've listened to it. I re-edited it and, and I'm like, there is this thing there that's still in essence. And, and I think it's still a good piece to put into the historical record. Yeah. And I think we, we still need to be talking, you know, thinking about listening to and talking about Royal cause he's so central to the story of climate. The 
The following interview with Royal Robbins was recorded in July of 2012 at the International Climbers Festival in Lander, Wyoming. Welcome to the Normal Cast. Uh, I am sitting across the table from uh, Royal Robbins, and I'd like to thank Royal for coming and sitting down with me. And uh, at the risk of embarrassing myself and, and Mr. Robbins here, um, as my introduction, I started climbing 20-some years ago, which uh, is a drop in the bucket for you. But um, in an era sort of pre-sport climbing, and, and uh, when I first started climbing, one of my guys was Leighton Core because I was from Colorado, <laughs> and I was a big fan, and I read a lot about Core. But you were right there behind him in terms of one of the guys that I admired, even though you had been climbing, you know, even 20 years before I had or 30. And uh, I just want to sort of put that out there as my philosophy in climbing as I went up through becoming better and better. The things that you taught the world about climbing were, were very much in the forefront of my mind in terms of clean climbing and, and the spirit of adventure and, and all those sorts of things. And you obviously have no way of knowing this, but you signed your biography for me to, uh, about 18 years ago <laughs> at an event, which was a really special moment for me, um, and I appreciate that. But again, thanks for coming and sitting down. Thank you very much. So I uh, wanted to ask you about when you were climbing back in those quote-unquote golden age of Yosemite climbing. I like that word, golden age. You know, you guys had created this philosophy or at least you were proponents of this clean climbing philosophy and this spirit of adventure. And you were about to tell me a little bit about the influence that John Salathay had on you. Well, Salathay was very influential on us mm -hmm. because he climbed in a way that we wish we had done that. Uh, that is to say, he didn't use uh, expansion bolts except when he was uh, when they were absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. And he free climbed uh, at a marvelous uh, standard. Uh, way above what we were doing without protection. And pretty impressive. So we always wanted to climb like John Salathay, and we named the Salathay Wall on, on uh, El Capitan after him. Mm -hmm. That was Yvonne Chenard's idea. Right. And so when you when you say we, you know, uh, I personally happen to know some of the characters from, from my delving into history, but we're talking about Chenard and Pratt and Tom Frost and, yes. and those names and, and any, anyone else that you'd like to sort of put in that group. Though there's the other names I would put in the group, uh, though they didn't have anything to do with the, our admiration of Salathay, was Leighton Core. Mm -hmm. uh, we called him Leighton the Greaton because he was a guy who came from not from Yosemite, not from California, but from outside, and he came to Yosemite and, and he climbed everything in sight at uh, rapid rate, a rapid rate. Yeah, and I guess that was probably really unusual, maybe shocking for you guys to have somebody not of your little core group to come in and show you what was what was being done maybe elsewhere too it was shocking yes but you guys went on to have a, a, a pretty uh, prolific career together you and core we did yeah i uh, had great admiration for core mm -hmm. i still do so you've actually just mentioned free climbing um that J john salathay was doing so was that something that you know you guys recognized as as obviously a style to kind of push yourself towards and away from sort of artificial climbing right well, away? Well, I don't think we saw it uh, as separate from artificial climbing as such. It's just that what Salathay did in the, uh, I think, in the in Pinnacles National Monument, uh, mm -hmm. climbed something called the Hand there, and he went so far out 
with uh, protection that uh, these days I'm happy to have it. All right. <laughs> and, we, and so we were very impressed by uh, his free climb ability, but also his solo of uh, the arrowhead tip um, where he almost got to the top. And he did that solo. Mm-hmm. And in, in those days, you just didn't do that sort of thing. And this was way, this is even in the 50s. This it was, was in the 50s. Late 50s, right? No, I think it was in the 40s. Oh, it was in the 40s. Yes. Okay. So you you came up, um, you know, I've read uh, your the biography by Pat Ament and uh, looking at your past, you came up through Boy Scouting. Is that where you ended up learning to climb? Yes. Mm-hmm. In yes. California. That's right. In uh, the Sierra Nevada, yes. And then what... Do you remember when you first started, you know, when you first started climbing and also from reading your, from reading the biography, you know, you had a less than perfect childhood. I'll just leave it at that and people can go and find those books and read them and, and the ones you're working on now, which we'll talk about. But did you, do you have a moment and you're a very self-aware man now, did, did you have a moment where you saw this climbing thing as maybe something that was going to be your future? Uh, not in that sense, but right. I, I had a moment when I said to myself, climbing is it. Uh, that's what I want to do. I want to be like these pictures I, I'd seen of climbers who, who were apparently unafraid, apparently. Uh-huh. And was that something that you, you were, you were doing was conquering some fears or, or wanting to feel more secure? And I think I was doing? conquering fears. Yes. Uh-huh. What, the name of your your newest book is uh, is to be brave, and that that's does that speak to this idea of, of seeing these guys that are, are I think to be so. Fearless? I, I I wanted to be brave, and I thought everybody wants to be brave, mm-hmm. so I would title it that. Mm-hmm. So yes, uh, and it comes from uh, a picture I saw in uh, in uh, James Ramsey Ullman's. High conquest okay. of the climber on the steep rock face, and but you can't put it into words. You have to s- s- say some different words. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So, too brave uh, captures it. Another question I saw, or, or something I contemplate, is that so much of what uh, this group of, of guys, primarily, but including Liz, your, your wife, at the time, but what you guys were doing, this group of people in the golden age, has become so significant in terms of American rock climbing and, and worldwide rock climbing. When you were doing it, did you guys have a sense of this? Did you feel sort of a, a weight of, of the maybe future importance of what you were up to? No, we didn't. We didn't have any sense of it. But uh, I'm very happy to to hear that uh, that we were set a, st- a certain standard that uh, that is looked up to. So I'm very happy about that, but we didn't have any idea that that we were doing anything of the sort. Sure. Well, that's it's awesome you're laughing about that because when I look at pictures of you in that era, you know, some of the clothes is, are are a little bit different, not that much different, and obviously the gear's different. But I always just feel like, yeah, you could simply transpose those pictures to modern times, and you were you were just another generation of the rest of us. In, in that time so I, I, that was my question like did they know what they were up to um, no we didn't know right we didn't know but uh, I wanted personally I wanted to be like Gaston Rebufa mm-hmm. uh, who was always very photogenic sure and very good well I, a, a little quick aside when the first time I went to Yosemite um, I was this was the 90s 
but I was prone to wearing a uh, because of um, uh, pictures of Ray Northcutt and Leighton Core. No, this is how much of a nerd I was. I was prone <laughs> to wearing a fifty style flat top, uh-huh. and uh, I was in the Camp Four parking lot, and this guy came up to me and he said, "You know who you look like?" Because I had glasses like these, and he's. I said, "Who?" He's like, "You look like Royal Robbins." And then he called all his buddies over and said, look at this guy. He looks like Royal Robbins. And I was like, I said, yes, perfect. I look like Royal Robbins. So as, as, an, as an honor to you, sir. Well, thank you. <laughs> but, but again, like this feeling of connection to your generation is something I think all climbers that walk into Yosemite have to feel. Well, I feel going into Yosemite every time, I feel like I, it's the first time. Uh, I've never been there before. It's such a wonderful place. Mm. Amazing. And, and you live uh, you live in Modesto, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So about two and a half hours from. Yeah. So you get there occasionally, then still. Well, not for climbing, right. uh, but for uh, the Yosemite Conservancy, mm-hmm. we go there during this time when you know the South Day was created and and uh, North American Wall and that that era. Were you a relatively permanent resident in the valley? Uh in the spring and, and fall, we were relatively permanent, but mm-hmm. we left in the summer to come to to places like Wyoming or Colorado, or uh, occasionally to uh, S- South Dakota, mm-hmm. uh, because it was cooler. All right. <laughs> and we thought, well, let's get out. Of, let, let's get away from this heat, and we could also go to the to the Twilight Meadows. Mm-hmm. And be up in the in the Sierra, mm-hmm. or it's cooler too. One thing too, researching, sort of researching your history. Not that I had to; I, I kind of knew it. Um, but right away in your history, there's this uh, amazing woman woman standing with you, um, Liz, your your wife. Yeah. And how long have you guys been together? Well, we've been together since I think '61, okay. and we got married in '63, okay. November. Can you sum up the connection you had with her through climbing and how she sort of influenced you as, as a person and as a climber? I mean, that's a big question, I know. but uh, Sum it up, no. Uh, I, all I say is that she had a profound influence on me, mm-hmm. and she still does. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's very smart and um, usually right mm-hmm. <laughs> when I'm usually wrong. Right. <laughs> and you guys, you, you met in Yosemite? How did you, how did you meet? I think we met in Yosemite, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was uh, working at the Awani Hotel. Okay. And came over to uh, to a Teton tea party with uh, a, well, we call him a closet climber. He was a good-looking fellow mm-hmm. who also worked for the Curry Company. Mm-hmm. And at that time, Curry employees were not allowed to fraternate fraternize with climbers okay that's so, probably a good policy in general but. it probably is <laughs> nevertheless sorry to interrupt keep going you're right <laughs> so she uh, shows up so at the party and i was tr- quite taken taken by her mm-hmm. um i remember that uh that herb and i walked her home uh which was a ways because um at that time as I explained in my book, uh, she was being stalked by a, a fellow uh, member of uh, of the Curry Company, mm-hmm. and uh, he didn't like the idea that she was so free with her charms. Right. Okay. 
So you walked her home. So we walked her home, and I got in an argument with this guy who was there. And uh, the argument didn't lead anywhere, but uh, I told Herb, well, you can always count on me. Uh-huh. <laughs> didn't tell him what that meant, but I, I said so, and he was happy to hear it. Mm-hmm. So I let it go at that. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's about it. That's about it. Yeah. And then you guys started seeing each other or you, you well we started seeing back. each other mm-hmm. yeah she started coming to camp four sure. and i thought well i'll ask this girl out mm-hmm. so i i didn't know about movies and i didn't know how to dance so i asked her to climb you oh right so we went up in, into the twelve meadows and climbed the southeast buttress of cathedral peak and that was her first climb amazing amazing a walk in uh-huh and you were just that was it you were smitten that was it right that was it and you managed to convince her too. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> I, I love that story because it happens to this day again and again and again. <laughs> and maybe it doesn't result in what you guys have, but the idea of a climber, you know, seeing a gal who's working at the at the curry company now, you know, uh, the concessionaire in Yosemite, and what do all climbers? The only thing they've got is, hey, do you want to go climbing? Yeah, <laughs> and you know, most of the time it doesn't work out that well, but. For you guys, it apparently has. Most of the time, it doesn't. You're right. Right. So that's that's an awesome story because again, it's sort of timeless. Mm. We can we can put it to today. Mm. It, it happened this weekend, I'm sure, to <laughs> somebody in in Yosemite. So, um, and you you the two of you went on to form a climbing school in in uh, Europe, um, in Le- Laysan. Is that right? Uh, we we started one in uh, California mm-hmm. when we came back from Europe, mm-hmm. but in Europe uh, we. Uh, Became part of the uh, International School of Modern Mountaineering, which was started by uh, by John Harlan uh-huh. Senior, and he he also was the uh, sports director at the American High School there in Lausanne, and uh, he gave up his uh, posts there so he could concentrate on climbing the Eiger by direct in sure. direct route in winter, mm-hmm. and we took his place. Right, this and I. Right. So we we became sports directors of the American school, high school there. How long did you stay over in Europe then? Uh, total About. of two years. Okay. From 65 to 67. Uh-huh. And then did you end up coming back to Yosemite? Yes. We came back to Modesto, which okay. met Yosemite. And, uh, and uh, you know, just to put it in history is that John went on and uh, ended up being killed on the Eiger. Yes. And the direct. Um, and his son is the uh, editor of uh, the Alpine Journal now. Um, so, you know, there's kind of a period, and I wanted to ask you real quick about it. We don't have to cover it all, but where I sort of lost track as well. But um, you ended up, uh, in the late 70s, you ended up becoming a kayaker, which I'd, I'd like to get to for just a minute. But so, you know, what were your primary motivations you know through the early 70s climbing around the world were you you know um what was going on i was trying to uh what they call um tidy up okay a little bit to finish your tick list in terms of some of the big big climbs that you wanted to do around the world it was smaller climbs by the time uh hooker was the big one okay uh in the wind river range here Mm -hmm. and uh but uh, in the early seventies, we tended to to do short, hard climbs in Twelve Meadows with Chris Vandiver, and uh, also in Colorado. Right, and this is this is the era when you really were concentrating on on advancing free climbing and advancing this idea of 
of uh, of clean climbing in terms of protection as well. I think uh, the 70s is, is accurate, yes. Yeah, so because you, that's one thing I think in, you know, I, I say I missed it, but you're so known for these big walls. You're so known for the South Bay. You're so known for the North American Wall and some of these other things that you did. But looking at your free climbing record and perhaps because it was smaller routes, um, but, you, you know, Royal Robbins was someone who was advancing that pretty consistently all the way through the 70s as Jim Erickson was in Colorado and, and some of your contemporaries yeah. were. Um, but you're right in there. I mean, even in Boulder Canyon and, and around Boulder, there's some very difficult uh, first ascents that you did, including athletes' feet up on Country Club Crack. Which, Country Club Crack, yes. Yeah, up on Country Club, yeah, next to Country Club Crack, which uh, anybody Boulder listeners will know that that's, it's, an ex, it's an exceedingly difficult uh, few moves on that climb that you freed quite a long time ago. So. I guess I was with a, a guy who pushed me, uh, Pat Amet. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, was, I seemed to to, uh, to squeeze it out when he was around. Right, right. That's excellent. Yeah, he and uh, Pat went on to write uh, your uh, a biography of you. Um, yes, he did. Spirit of the Age. So that's one thing that people can look up to find out a little bit more about you. So moving on. So you ended up uh, becoming a, a big descent kayaker. Yeah. Um, through the late 70s and, and, and onward, was there a distinct transition or is it something that you kind of fell into with there another a, interest? I think there was a distinct transition. Okay. Uh, because I, I had to give up climbing because of arthritis in my wrists and ankles. Okay. And so I, I but I could, I could boat. Once I got into the kayak, it was okay. Mm-hmm. And, and did you was it something where you found some some of the same fulfillment as you'd gotten from climbing? Yes, in doing first, right, doing first descents throughout the Sierras and, and uh, throughout the Sierras and South America. For me, I find climbing to be so slow, especially big wall climbing, uh, and then kayaking is so fast and reactive to the water that my brain doesn't wrap around it very well. But it's not. I mean, it seems like you. Yeah, climbing is right different. Climbing is very different. Uh, I think in climbing you go more slowly. You're right, but uh, you have a, usually you have a chance, a second chance. And in kayaking, you don't have a second chance. I guess it's the opposite. In in climbing, if you without a rope, you don't have a second chance. And in kayaking, you might take a, a nasty swim, but you you might survive and you might not. So you always have a chance. So it's. Uh, Climbing is my first love because, uh, well, it, in a sense, it demands more of you. And so that, I always like that can about you, climbing. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I guess because it's, it's slow, it's slower than kayaking, you have to squeeze out more of yourself. Okay. That's all I can say about, um, that's a good question, though. I don't know what the answer is. It's it, again, it, as a person who thinks about these things, and uh, I have friend, plenty of friends who do other sports. Yeah. you know that that can be dangerous or, or whatever, and so I'm always wondering kind of what makes one different from the next. And I just know for myself that kayaking seems terrifying to me, and the fact that you have a rope and climbing, and, and most of the time a fall or whatever isn't that big a deal. But with kayaking, it seems like every time you swim, it can go 
from okay to bad very quickly. Very quickly. And anytime. Anytime. You know, on a sunny, warm day, no matter what. So I guess that that's sort of maybe again my my uh, why I'm impressed is that someone that can do both. You know, I can, well, I, I was impressed I could do both too. <laughs> <laughs> they are very different, right. but uh, they're also have similarities mm-hmm. in that they're both serious. So you you and and Liz um, started Royal Robbins, your clothing company, about thirty years ago. Is that in 1968. Oh, well, it's been around that long. I think so. Okay. Yeah. So, and uh, did, when you when you approach that sort of thing, I mean, this is kind of a, maybe a little bit of a cliche question, but, you know, as someone who's an, who's an entrepreneur or as a businessman or business person, is there things from climbing that you, you sort of brought to the table in terms of how you approached uh, creating a business? That's, that's I mean, it's a, quite a large business now and, and uh, sells clothes all over the world and, and is obviously your livelihood. So what did you bring? If, is there anything you brought from climbing to approach that? I would say that uh, the only thing I, I was conscious of bringing from climbing is perseverance. Mm-hmm. You keep trying and keep at something, you're eventually going to probably succeed. Right. But it takes a lot out of you to keep trying. Right. It's much easier to give up. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So at least with, you know, I think probably with a business and with climbing, there's a, a level of commitment that keeps you going along as well. I mean, when you're halfway up El Cap, sometimes it's it's easier to keep going up than to go down. And when you've invested, you know, time, money and, and sweat into a, a <laughs> business, it's probably gets increasingly more difficult to walk away. It probably does. Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, I, I asked you as, as a preliminary to this, if you sort of kept up with modern climbing and particularly maybe what's going on in Yosemite. And you mentioned that, well, I don't exactly, but it's sort of thrust at me on occasion. But, um, you know, to frame it a little bit, as you've watched, you know, maybe El Cap get climbed more and more quickly. And as you've watched, maybe it get free climbed by certain people over the years. And, uh, you know, recently the nose was climbed and I couldn't quote you the number, but it was less time than it took us to have lunch today. Yeah. You know, what What? What are sort of maybe your thoughts? Like, because I can only imagine when you guys sat below an El Cap that had never been climbed. And now we're standing in a time when it gets climbed all the time and even so fast. I mean, can you sort of frame maybe some of your thoughts as, as those pieces of information have flowed across your your That's mind. a very interesting question. I would say that um, that Alex Honold, sure, yeah, his uh, free solos uh, strike me, hit me in the head more strongly than the, the speed trials up El Cap, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. though they're both amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I hear of El Cap being done faster than than I or my friends could run up the side, right. <laughs> Then that's pretty fast. Mm-hmm. That's uh, too fast, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think knowing your philosophy and and you were such a not just a, a climber, but this lover of the nature and and of, of the the natural world that surrounded you while you were climbing. Yeah, maybe two and a half hours doesn't give you much time to to sit and, and contemplate those things. Two and a half hours is really fast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So. And, you know, getting towards the end of this and, and when you do hear about Alex Honnold's 
ascents in Yosemite and these speed climbs. And um, are you still able to feel your influence in in that world in Yosemite and in in terms of that thing that you guys started um, continuing on through the ages? Do you feel like it's gone? far enough away that it's not there anymore or do you still feel that influence i don't feel the influence no no not sure <laughs> when someone does that cap in two and a half hours it's uh, foreign to me but a lot many things are right so i'm not surprised yeah well you know i'd like to say back you're 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 humble i think in that opinion of of your influence because as i was there and i and i've been back you know recently the fact that everyone still is trying to do these things in a style of adventure um, that I think harkens back to what you guys started. Um, and also, you know, although there's been obviously more and more bolts put in, um, there's still generally a feeling and an ethic of, of doing your best without them, um, especially on El Cap. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, I'd like to say that, yeah, you, you, you're, you're still there. You're still a, uh, Someone who I think people think about is in terms. Well, it's of nice to still be there. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> you're still, you know, you're, you're, you're the, you're the ideas you guys started. I think still, <laughs> still whisper through the valley. So, um, I'm, I'm appreciative of it. So, but I don't think we started the ideas. We kept them going. Okay. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, let me just wrap up by asking you about your uh, book series. Um, yes. That you're that you're writing. Um, the way I understand it, it's. It's uh, approximately a, a decade per book, uh, or approximately. Approximately, and there's going to be the uh, first first book mm -hmm. uh, is wraps around uh, my solo ascent of the uh, Leaning Tower, mm -hmm. and it uh, has to do with where I was born in West Virginia. Okay, growing up through the Scouts in uh, in Southern California when I started climbing. Uh huh. And the second book is more about climbing in Southern California and finishes with the ascent of Half Dome. The third book, which I've finished writing and mm -hmm. is at the printers now, we hope to have it out by September, uh, is uh, called Royal Robins of the Golden Age. Okay. And that has to do with uh, the ascent of, in Yosemite, of, uh, of El Capitan, the second ascent of the nose. And the first ascent of Solovain, the first ascent of the, uh, in 1964, of the North America Wall. Mm -hmm. And also in 1960, must have been 63, of the uh, direct route on Half Dome. So it's, it's a, lot, a lot about Yosemite. Uh-huh. Well, that looks, that sounds great. It's going to be out in the fall. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, and the first one is, uh, is again, called To Be Brave. And the second one is Fail Falling. Fail Falling, yes. Okay. And, you have, and, the, and the third one will be The Golden Age. Yes. Fantastic. All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, reminisce one more time about something that I have that's connected to you. Um, but I climbed Mount Proboscis in 1996. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I have a much uh, treasured photo of us holding you, your original summit register. Oh. With, with your name on it, with Core's name on it, with Dick's name on it. And uh, with Jim's name all on that original register, hmm. and that trip was made for me by finding that when we when we went up there. So um, congratulations! Yeah, it was it was an amazing moment for all of us because we were all uh, guys who who knew the history of the area and were hmm. steeped in it. And to find that little relic up there was was an amazing moment for me. Hmm. So 
and equally awesome is is to uh, to have met you, sir. And I'm really glad thank that you, you very sat much. down with me. And uh, good to be here. See you tonight. Thanks again, Royal. Bye bye. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to David Smart for joining me to get that done, helping me clear the way to put out that interview with Royal Robbins. David's book, Royal Robbins, The American Climber, is available wherever you get your books. Go to the Mountaineers website. That's probably your best bet. Hook those guys up. And, of course, my respects to the family of Royal Robbins. Rest in peace, sir. There was some tragedy in the end of Royal Robin's life, just the degenerative disease to a man whose physical prowess had carried him through life. However, 82, a life well lived, a half-century romance with Liz, two kids that loved him, and of course his indelible mark on climbing, big wall climbing, free climbing, and even bouldering. What indelible mark are you going to make? Ha, huh, no, that's too much pressure. Just go out and have fun and be safe. And of course... Check your knots. Hath yet his honor and his toil, death closes all. But something, ere the end, some work of noble note may yet be done, not unbecoming men that strove with gods. The lights begin to twinkle from the rocks, the long day wanes, the slow moon climbs, the deep moans round with many voices. Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off, and sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows, for my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. It may be that gulfs will wash us down, it may be we shall touch the happy isles to see the great Achilles whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield.